Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, along with my wonderful wife, Janet, and we have the pleasure of interviewing Jeff Deese today. He is from the Mises Institute um, out of Alabama, and the Mises Institute is an institute, and he can talk a little bit more about this, a lot more than I can about it, but it is an institute that just talks about free markets in general. I had the pleasure of meeting Jeff in uh, Texas la- last month, no, I'm sorry, in May, at the Free Market Medical Association when he was a speaker there. And we are, of course, going to focus on free markets today and in healthcare and how the government ruined them. There's not a free market. And what does that mean to you as a consumer of healthcare? You might be surprised. We hear all the time about how government medicine is good or government, government paying for anything is good, but in reality, it makes prices go up service down and quality go down. We're going to get into some of that today. So without further ado, uh, Jeff, welcome to our podcast. Thanks both of you for having me. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the Mises Institute first. Well, we try to be an alternative school of sorts to teach people about economics. In particular, we think that uh, the a lot of the ideas behind civilization and capital and sound money have gone off the rails, especially, let's say, uh, since the 1970s in particular. And so we exist as an educational organization to try to get people interested in, uh, first and foremost, probably sound money, because that really underlies everything in, in our financial system, but also just what kind of economics works, what's compatible with human nature, what uh, has you know realistic effects in society. And so if you look at the state of economics, the state of the profession, and of course the state of the economy itself, there's just so much confusion, so much misinformation. Things are needlessly complex, needlessly mathematical, statistical. There's a lot of modeling that's gone into the, the profession. And it's it's a it's a mess right now. So hopefully we exist as a resource for people to help cut through some of that. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about the Mises Institute and how you um, we're invited to the Free Market Medical Association. What's your guys' idea is on free market medicine? Well, it, it really is a shame because we know that markets produce the best outcomes for people, both in terms of their own personal prosperity, but also it, it, the improvement, the constant improvement of goods and services. And medicine somehow, sometime, uh, started to be viewed by people as this uh, good or service that was very, very different than other goods and services. It was a right, let's just say, or it had magic properties. And that just isn't true. Medicine, when we're talking about, let's say, a doctor's care, which is a service, or whether we're talking about a prescription drug, which is a good, or a hospital bed, which is a good, a physical good, uh, it's subject to the same laws of supply and demand, the same rules of economics as any other good or service. Now, obviously, medical care is critical. Medicine's critical to us. We all want to have uh, good doctors and good health care where we live. But lots of things are critical. Food is critical. Right. Uh, clean air and water are critical. Automobiles and transportation and energy are critical. And yet we don't think that these things ought to be nationalized necessarily or provided by government, although, you know, obviously – to an extent, housing and food, food stamps, these sorts of things exist. But once we started to get away from the idea of the marketplace for medical care, uh, things really went off the rails. And so I uh, used to work for Congressman Ron Paul, and through him, mm-hmm. I met people like Dr. Jane Orient, 
from the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons. And later in my life, I got to meet Keith Smith and learn about his story at the Oklahoma Surgery Center and become involved tangentially anyway with the Free Market Medical Association. That's how I got to meet people like you at their annual meetings. So we, we got a lot of work to do because man, oh man, has the free market been messed up when it comes to medicine. For sure. Janet, what questions do you have for Jeff? So magically, 1970 is in your conversation piece. And what happened during that time frame to change that trajectory? <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> well, uh, on the money side, some a, a very bad thing happened when Richard Nixon was president, which is essentially uh, the United States dollar was completely unleashed from gold. So after 1971, just not even by Congress's decree, but by the decree of Richard Nixon, foreign governments could no longer exchange their dollars for gold. So some people view 1971 as very, very important in terms of the devaluation of the U.S. dollar and things getting more expensive for average people. So that's one thing. But also, uh, really in the 1970s and then in, in increasingly in the 1980s, we started to develop this idea of health insurance. Right. And this is where a third party – um, got involved in the equation between a doctor and the doctor's patient or between a pharmaceutical company and, the, and the, someone who is using the drug. And at first, this took the form of government programs like Medicare and Medicaid, uh, which, you know, were, Medicare was passed in the 1960s and really got rolling in the 1970s. But then it started to take the form of ostensibly private third-party uh, health insurance companies, HMOs, PPOs, and the like. And so uh, both of these factors drove a wedge between doctors and patients. And we think a lot about the Hippocratic Oath and the idea that doctors owe a really important ethical duty of care to their patients, not to the, the dollars that they're charging or not to a third party who might be paying them in the form of government or a health insurer. And once you get third parties involved in that equation between a doctor and a patient, uh, very quickly we saw costs get out of whack because it's very, very simple. It's human nature. When we, see, when, when we think something's free or when we think something has a fixed cost, I have to pay my monthly or annual premium or I have to reach my monthly or annual deductible. But beyond that, it's free. Uh, human nature tells us that people are likely to consume a lot more of that free medicine than they might need. Uh, so it really started an upward spiral in prices and a downward spiral in the quality of care because – uh, rather than just simply being focused on the patient and the patient's needs, doctors and doctors' offices, their staff, started to get a lot more involved in billing, started to get a lot more involved in administration. Uh, and these things added a lot of overhead. And, of course, off to the side, not unrelated, but off to the side, you had malpractice uh, and malpractice insurance starting to go up and up and up during that period. So things really changed. And uh, certainly my parents' generation and, and my grandparents' generation, uh, they went to the doctor and they paid cash. Right. They paid cash for virtually all basic services, including, you know, a week in the hospital for, let's say, delivering a baby and having right. a baby. Can you imagine staying in the hospital now for a week uh, with just a normal, uh, easy childbirth? Yeah. I guess there is no easy childbirth, but, a, you know, a, a, yeah. a, one without complications. So it's a very different world now that we're in a third-party system rather than a, a direct paying system. Well, and when you look at that uh, example of of having a baby in the hospital, staying there in a week, you know, now a, 
regular delivery is I, I've heard you know as you know in, in without a free market the prices are all over the place but I've heard you know there's 40 there's hospitals that charge forty thousand dollars to have a regular vaginal delivery birth and back in the 70s um, I remember my uncle who had my cousin and paid cash it was like 500 bucks mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know so the prices have just skyrocketed partly because mostly because there's a third party involved. And so the actual direct consumer doesn't have to keep that price in check. Well, interestingly, Dr. Ron Paul was an OBGYN. He's delivered about 4,000 babies, it is estimated. And when he got out of the Air Force and started his own practice in a small town in South Texas, which was near the Air Force base, which he had ultimately, where he had ultimately been stationed after the Korean conflict, um, he had a waiting room full of patients from an older retiring doctor. Uh, He made some arrangements with that older retiring doctor to purchase, you know, the physical equipment in the office and later the building. Uh, He had no debt from medical school. He'd been able to work his way through and, and take up shifts at the ER to pay for that. Every member of his staff, when he started his practice, was involved in direct patient care because there wasn't any billing. It was cash only. And everything from the first visit through to the hospitalization delivery was just a few hundred dollars, as you mentioned. And more importantly, this is the late 1960s, as an OB, mind you, he had no malpractice insurance. It it, it just conceptually didn't exist yet. So that shows you how different the landscape is. And of course, Keith Smith will talk about this, like all doctors, like all medical doctors across all specialties and practices. In the late 1960s, Dr. Paul knew there were certain women in his, under, in his area, you know, this was a geographic thing. There weren't very many OBs in, in South Texas. Some women simply wouldn't be able to pay. And he would either treat these women for free or he would give them a discount or sometimes they would even give other, you know, types of payment back then. But this was just understood and accepted by doctors. They, it wasn't considered some big noble sacrifice. It was just part and parcel of being a doctor. Some women were poor and unable to pay him. And that was, you know, a certain 10% or whatever uh, would just be part, uh, you know, baked into his, uh, the, the economics of his business. And my gosh, uh, doesn't that sound pretty good now? Yeah. So how do we get back there? Have we gone too far? <laughs> I think we've gone too far. Um, look, we know the model. That, that's the thing is, is we don't have to create the correct business model. We, we've already got that. All we have to do is look at a time when American medicine was the envy not only of the world but even of the developed and industrialized world. And that, that model is very simple. Plus, it would benefit from all the wonderful technologies and medicines we have today, which we didn't have 30 or 50 or 75 years ago. But the model is very simply, simple. You pay cash for basic services. That means when you go to the dentist or the eye doctor or the, the urgent care for those sniffles or, or you know, go te- check out your tennis elbow, all of that basic services, you pay cash. And if you're Barbara Streisand, you probably have a very fancy concierge doctor and you pay them $10,000 a month and they come to your house and treat you like royalty because you're a rich person. And if you're a person of very modest means, perhaps working several low, lower paid jobs, you go to a Walmart clinic and they charge you 40 or $50 for the visit, okay? And everything in between. But none like cash for basic services. Now, when it comes to 
serious illness, hospitalizations, accidents, the kind of things that we can apply risk measures against and that we can insure against because we can get statistics about how likely they are to happen. The market would allow for high deductible catastrophic policies. So you could go buy a policy. You might have a $10,000 deductible. But it would be very, very inexpensive against something like cancer or, um, uh, you know, heart attack or stroke or, or, or you know, serious illness. And, and, and the premium on that high deductible policy would be very low and very cheap if you were young and healthy. Now, as you get older and less healthy or if you have some bad habits in your life, you know, that, that's just how, how things go. There would be some actuarial risk assigned to that, and you would be assessed a premium based on your risk profile. But in your 20s, just out of school, let's say, it would be very, very inexpensive. And then finally, we would have charitable hospitals, charity uh, doctors like the aforementioned Dr. Paul treating the truly poor and the truly indigent in society. So th those would be the three stools of the model. So, you know, that's the economic model. Uh, the question is, how do we ever get back to that when we've muddied the water so unbelievably with Medicare, with HMOs, with PPOs, which, with Obamacare, which actually requires you on paying a penalty. Now, the Trump administration got rid of that penalty, but nonetheless, under paying a penalty to have health insurance. That's, that's not a market, folks. When, when the government tells you you have to have something, and you go buy it, that's not the free market. That's, that's cronyism or maybe even fascism under a particular definition. But so we're a long way from that three-pronged model that I laid out. Yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot to ingest there. Thank you so much. Janet, what questions do you have for him? So we mentioned debt. And one of the things that Sean and I have witnessed, even with pharmacy students, and this is true of of many of the physicians that are coming out of school, that their student debt load is off the chart. So, you know, it seems almost impossible for them to think that they can pay this back on a cash model. So I, I just wonder what thoughts you have about what we're seeing in this scenario. Mm. Well, <laughs> it's not just med students, it's pharmacy students too. Uh -huh. I, I sit across the street from a pharmacy school at Auburn University, and that's not cheap, folks. Uh, th this is an absolute travesty. We want the best and brightest young people to consider medicine, not just Silicon Valley or Wall Street or investment banking. We want bright young people going to medical school. And we know, folks, that medical school should be largely an apprenticeship. Sure, there should be some classroom instruction. Uh, you have to learn physiognomy and all kinds of things like that. But for the most part, um, the, you know, we could say this yeah. about law. We could say this about a lot of professions in America. They, there ought to be much more of an apprenticeship and a mentorship. So the idea that young people are going to get out of debt, excuse me, get out of medical school with maybe $200,000 worth of debt. Well, what's going to happen then is they are almost certainly – Unlike doctors 30 or 50 years ago, they are going to go become a W-2 employee of a hospital or a medical group or a big corporation or a PPO or an HMO. They're not going to be independent. And because they're a W-2 employee, the entire model, the entire Hippocratic oath of them providing care with the patient's best interests in mind is, is ethically challenged because there's going to be uh, a bureaucrat or administrator looking over their shoulder saying, no, no, don't prescribe that drug. 
prescribe this cheaper drug. Or no, don't use your judgment about which, which tests uh, to assign. You got to assign all the tests because our malpractice risk, even if it's tiny, you know, might kick in if we don't uh, uh, have an MRI for this minor, uh, minor car accident, for example. So everything about the direct doctor-patient relationship was much improved when most doctors, not all, but most doctors were independent. They were business owners. We could say this of pharmacists too. Lots of them work for mm-hmm. big chains now. They used to own pharmacies. They used to know, especially their elder, elderly clientele. They used to compound. They used to have a sense of what other prescriptions a patient might be taking that perhaps a harried or busy doctor wouldn't know about. And that pharmacist might say, you know, Mrs. Smith, I'm a little worried about this uh, the, you know, because this drug might contradict another drug or, or counteract another drug you're taking. Why don't we call your doctor? I mean, that's the kind of caring environment that my parents and grandparents enjoyed. And boy, uh, you know, when, when these young people are coming out of school with that, I mean, they might, an MD doctor, an MD doctor basically gave up their entire 20s and all the opportunity cost of that and gotten themselves $200,000 in debt. Maybe they go work for Kaiser, the big group out West. And, you know, they might only make $150,000, $175,000 out of medical school. Uh, that's, that's a situation where, you know, I, uh, where I'm a middle-aged guy. And if I'm fortunate, someday I'm going to be an old guy. And we really wonder who, who are going to be the doctors? Right. Who's going to put up with this stress and debt? And not even the prestige of a doctor 30 or 50 years ago. Who's going to do that? I fear that our best and brightest young people are going to head to other professions. Right. Yeah, I'm with you. And just to let you know, and our listeners and viewers, that and Janet might be able to uh, reiterate this, but $200,000, Jeff, that's oh, low. That's very oh, boy. The lowest I've ever heard is two fifty recently. And the most I've ever heard is 800 at a private oh. school. And it's just most of them are around... 350 to 500. And when wow. you think about that, yeah, when you think about that, and, and they usually pay it off over 30 years, that is a slave. That's being a slave. Now, here's what I got a question for you. The system, the healthcare system, which is, which is largely government run, do you think they like to have these physicians in big debt? Because then they can c- control them. Well, it sure seems that way. You know, the big medical groups and the big hospital groups are oftentimes, for example, in Pennsylvania, the single biggest ostensibly private employer in the state is a medical group. It's not uh, U.S. Steel in Pittsburgh or something like that from some old movie. It's a medical group. And the reason it's a medical group is because as a society, we're pretty addled. Uh, you know, so many people are diabetic. So many people are taking multiple prescription drugs. So many people have chronic conditions. It's really become sick care rather than health care. And uh, I do think that I don't want to say that people are badly motivated, that they actually want a sick or taking lots of drugs. Or, you know, I don't think pharmaceutical companies sat around at night saying, gee, I hope there's a pandemic that kills a bunch of people so that we can make billions off a vaccine. No, I, I don't think that. But I do think that once a pandemic comes, then, you know, pharmaceutical companies say, hey, you know, this is an opportunity for us. And so people tend to think that what's in their own financial interest is also in the best interests of society. And that's why if you ask a surgeon, 
should I do surgery or should I try rehab? A surgeon might say, well, you should probably have surgery because that's what <laughs> surgeons do, right? <laughs> right. Um, that's how <laughs> surgeons get paid. So we all have sort of a, a self-interest in, 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 uh, in our profession or in, you know, in, when it comes to medicine in uh, our specialty. So I don't think people are badly motivated, but I think that the system has become so big and so cumbersome uh, with Medicare, for example, uh, Sean and I were talking offline about the Medicare Part D prescription drug bill, which is just an absolute behemoth. Uh, it, it was passed in the middle of the night by a very narrow margin, and a bunch of the Republicans who ultimately caved in and voted for were being pressured in the most unholy ways you, c- you can't even imagine by the leadership of the GOP, you know, threatening that, you know, one of them wanted their kid to run for the same seat, and they were saying, your son will never be a congressman, that sort of thing. And the reason that bill was passed, in part, was so that George W. Bush could uh, beat John Kerry, in the 2004 election by saying, right. see, look what I did for seniors. Yep. And so we created this monster where all of a sudden you have, you know, all these seniors uh, who don't have to worry anymore about their ability to pay for a drug. They just become almost an overnight market. So you can imagine how much the pharmaceutical industry lobbied for that bill. Oh, my gosh. You know, all these poor seniors are now going to be able to to avail themselves of these expensive drugs. And, of course, that just ratcheted up the costs uh, remarkably. And now we have this this system where between – the third-party uh, HMOs and PPOs that you know who cover tend to provide uh, prescription drug coverage in in most people's health insurance from work, and then once you retire, Medicare Part D, you know people have developed this mindset now that prescriptions are free. Well, they're not free. They cost billions of dollars to develop and test and, and become approved. And so someone's paying that. And what's happening is we're all paying it, but in a, in a remarkably inefficient way, where there's no market discipline between the person who's taking the pill, the person who's prescribing the pill, uh, the person who's developing the pill. You know, none of these people are worried about cost effectiveness in any of this equation. And, you know, compare that with uh, you know, all kinds of private things that we might go and buy, like an iPhone or an automobile, where there's a lot more market discipline, a lot more supply and demand reality. So it's, it's uh, you know, Medicare Part D and prescription drugs are an important part uh, of this story, but also is something we could look at a little bit more in isolation to say, wow, you know, here's how costs spiral out of control. So... If you if you look at the market as a consumer not paying the bill, what are your thoughts on if the consumer started paying the bill, would we have more of a healthcare system and less of a sick care system? Well, that's the absolute key. Um, you know, unfortunately, with the rise of third party payers, government or private so called insurance. Um, that really changed the landscape for charitable medicine in this country. And a lot of those charitable hospitals went out of business uh, or became beholden to the system. And so as a result of that, a lot of poor folks in this country now view the ER as their primary care uh, because they don't have insurance. And so that's that obviously drives up costs enormously because every time they go to the ER, it costs lots and lots of money and they end up not paying the bill but but taxpayers do if it's a if it's a particularly a government funded ER. So that's that's a huge problem is is people going to the ER as primary care. But just for all of us in general, 
If we were paying out of pocket for basic services, we would immediately see that the cost of those services, an eye exam, a dental cleaning, um, a, a you know, typical visit to an urgent care clinic for a sick child. The cost of all those for cash would plummet very, very quickly. We don't even know the cost of those things because we just submit. We give the the receptionist our little healthcare card, and then you know we end up paying ten or fifteen or twenty bucks in the copay or something. We don't even know the cost. Well, uh, you know, Keith Smith in the surgical end of things has shown us. He's, he's, his organization has shown just how enormously expensive surgery is when we have this third party complicating everything and how cheap it can be when it's cash. And as he, his clinic has demonstrated, a lot of surgeries can be well under $10,000, all inclusive. We're talking anesthesia, the surgeon itself, the surgical fee, uh, the drugs, the, the, the overnight stay, and the aftercare can all be well under $10,000 for a variety of surgeries. So that, that shows you the power of cash. So if we could take that cash model and apply it to more of the day-to-day frontline medicine that, for instance, family practitioners engage in, boy, that would be a revolution. And here's the thing, folks, is you think, well, okay, Jeff, that sounds great. But, you know, in the meantime, the model is the model. I got to have health insurance for my employer at work because if my kid does get in a serious accident or, you know, I can't be paying, you know, my doctor doesn't even have a cash price for those, those sniffles because they're just, they're operating under insurance model. What can I do? Well, here's the interesting thing is that, you know, most people are paying at least part, uh, if not all, of their, their premium, their health insurance premium that they obtain through their employer. Now, that's pre-tax. It provides a little tax benefit. But nonetheless, the premiums keep going up and up. And now we have evidence that the employer and employee portion together of that premium is running well over $22,000 on average. Uh, for most wow. families of four. And then you throw on top of that all of the co-pays and all of the deductibles you're paying on top of that. And you can very quickly get up over $25,000 a year. So whether you know it or not, you may not be aware of it because it's a pre-tax benefit, so-called, in your in your paycheck every month. But you're probably, most people who are getting health insurance through their employer, are probably already at a starting point of about twenty-two dollars to $25,000 a year. Now, I know in my family of four, most years, we don't consume anywhere close to twenty-five grand worth of healthcare, and that's even at the inflated prices by the third-party system. If we had a cash system, and I actually had that twenty-five thousand dollars in my pocket, um, you know, we would be frugal with that, and we could pay for a lot of stuff out of pocket. So the, the premiums keep rising, but the cash prices, as Keith Smith and others have demonstrated with some of the offshore medicine, some of the medicine in Mexico, the dental work down there, the cash prices are coming down. The deductibles and the premiums are rising. So the difference between the two is getting closer and closer. So because of that, because the third-party model is so bad and so inefficient, there might be a silver lining in that more people are going to become aware of cash medicine and the opportunities it presents. And look, guys, my, my I live in a town of about 80,000 people, a college town, not very big. There are two direct primary uh, family care physicians I know of. 
uh, just in my little town of Auburn, Alabama. So if you're in, you know, a big city, uh, we might see this industry explode because there's an untapped market underneath there. And if we could just get people out of this mentality, but here's the key. The key to all of it, I would be perfectly willing to give up my health care insurance and uh, just just pay cash out of pocket for everything. But the kicker is that I would worry about a serious illness or accident. I would worry about when I'm, when, you know, getting in a car wreck or having cancer or something like that. So that's where I would need that really high deductible uh, catastrophic type insurance. So that's, that's something where, unfortunately, the government has come in. And it's intervened. And under Obamacare, it's very difficult to uh, offer bare-bones policies because now all policies have to cover pregnancy, for example, even if you happen to be a male, a single male. Uh, all policies have to cover things like drug and alcohol rehabilitation, you know, stuff that's not bare-bones. Uh, and, and so every plan now compared to the past is a bit of a Cadillac plan. But if we could get back to really applying uh market discipline and actuarial risk tables to high deductible uh, policies. You know, a family like mine, uh, if we're pretty healthy and we don't do things like drink and smoke, uh, we don't fly private aircraft, other things that have a big risk profile, um, you know, we might be able to get uh, high deductible catastrophic insurance so that even buying that and paying the premium ourselves out of pocket uh, that would be less than that, you know, roughly twenty-two to twenty-five thousand that, you know, our portion and the employer portion is now paying. So it's uh, these are interesting times we live in, and the marketplace finds a way. That's what's so beautiful yeah. about all this. The marketplace finds a way, and I think underneath that twenty-two to twenty-five thousand dollars, as I pointed out at the FMMA conference, you you att- you two attended, uh, Sean and Janet. There's a lot. There's a market under there, and I hope that some of these heroic cash doctors will move into that market and tap it. I believe they will. Uh, free markets always win. You look in any industry, anytime the government tries to overregulate it. Um, you even look at, you know, in communist countries where the government tries to stop free markets, they can't. Eventually, the free market always wins. So I'm, I'm hopeful that in medicine, it's going to be the same in the United States. Um, you know, in fact, I wrote a book about it. It's called Sickened, How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. And we basically have went over a lot of the principles that you were just talking about, um, Jeff. So I, I appreciate you going through it in detail like you did and focusing on on free markets and, and economy because you know that's really what it's all about. And you mentioned one time about self-interest with a surgeon or you know whatever specialty you're in, you're going to say they need surgery or whatever. But let's just, let's just get it on the table and say... That it's okay. Us looking out for our self-interest, we always, everybody does it all the time. And that's okay. But unfortunately, we look at that and say, well, it's, you know, that's just a selfish person. And selfish is different than self-interest. And the greatest economist that ever lived, in my opinion, was Milton Friedman. And he mentioned that one time in a speech, I think it was with his, his, his legendary Donahue speech, that individuals pursuing self-interest is what drives pretty much everything. And that's okay, right? Well, it is okay, but the the key is to get those interests aligned. Your interest in visiting the doctor is to have a good outcome from, let's say, your problem and to have that be affordable to you. Your doctor's interest is uh, to treat you well, uh, hopefully to solve your problems so that you'll be a loyal uh, customer 
I mean, this is a business too. Medicine is a calling, but it's also a business. You'll be a loyal customer and also recommend him or her to other people and, and grow the practice as a result. So those, those incentives are aligned as much as they are when you're going to, a, let's say, a restaurant as a customer. And we've lost sight of that somehow in medicine. Yeah, and there's so many industries that we could compare it to, and that's okay. But unfortunately, like you said early on, we got away from that in in calling you know medicine a commodity. And maybe I'm using the wrong term there, but we should shop uh, with our healthcare like we should any other industry. And if that's the case, it will be like an, a free market industry where prices go down, service goes up, quality goes up, and it won't be like it's been with with prices escalating so much. So um, I thank you for being on. I do have a question for you as we wrap this up. What are you passionate about, Jeff? Well, I'm certainly passionate about what Dr. Keith Smith is doing and what FMMA, the Free Market Medical Association, is doing because, um, you know, I think we have a lot of sick people in this country. Uh, I think psychologically this country is not in a good place, not only with the division uh, that we witness in politics, but also with COVID and the after effects of the lockdowns. Uh, a, a lot of people are not in a great place psychologically. That affects, of course, your physical health as well. And I just, I, uh, I'm passionate about hopefully getting back to an America where people are optimistic um, you know, I have teenagers and I want them to have a, a feeling like I had, let's say, in the 1980s and 90s, that my future was going to be uh, good, may, perhaps better than my parents, perhaps more um, successful than my parents. And if we, if we lose that, if we lose that optimism or that sense of hope, uh, then we're, you know, that's worse than any material deprivation we might have in this country. So we got to focus on that. I mean, we have to think about uh, medicine and really the marketplace in general in, in terms of, of uh, getting us back to a healthier place. Absolutely. So, Jeff, if anybody has any questions, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Uh, well, they can go to Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org, or follow me on Twitter, uh, and uh, I'd be happy to respond. I love it. I love it. So thank you for being on today. You've really helped realize our goal, which is to educate and empower consumers to take charge of their own health. And as always, we will have another podcast, midweek podcast Thursday. We will have Hunter Schultz on. We will be basically following up on this topic and we're going to talk about consumers and doctors in healthcare and how they can better this environment. So thank you, Jeff, for being on today. Thank you, listeners and viewers for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you. 